where each week we'll be discussing topics on true crime, haunted histories, and all things paranormal. This week we're talking about Sutomo Miyazaki, the otaku killer. This episode is brought to you by the letter B for Butt Monkey. I do hope Sutomo is enjoying the complimentary torture that Hell has to offer as Satan's Butt Monkey. And as always, I'd like to thank our sponsor, along with all the other passengers on Something Wicked Cruise Line, and remind them that this podcast is filled with mature language, adult content, and ADHD tangents, because shiny tidbits make my crow brain happy. Enjoy! First thing, I don't know if there are any Studio Ghibli fans out there, but the name Miyazaki struck a chord with me when I heard it associated with the killer, so I had to do some digging. Sutomu, thankfully, is of no relation to Hayao Miyazaki, the creator of Studio Ghibli, because Hayao is a saint and he helped shape my childhood, just to clear that up. So, here in the grand old US of A, we have this lovely stigma that has been going on for years about video games. How they make you violent, how they turn people into delinquents and killers, yada yada. Well, if that's the case, I would have ended up in the ADX Florence Supermax by now because there's nothing better when I'm playing an RPG than to sneak up behind an enemy NPC and backstab them to watch the light die from their eyes as they suffer a slow, agonizing death. But in real life, I'm super bubbly. Like, I bake cookies and shit. So I'm pretty sure that whole theory is just a load of bull. (laughs) These people make me laugh, mostly due to my IQ level dropping from hearing them speak. And over in Japan, where our story takes place, this same paranoid stupidity revolved around anime and hentai for years because the asshat we're talking about today pretty much single-handedly created the stigma for it over there. As a gamer and anime fan myself, I'd like to extend a very warm cup of shut the fuck up and let people enjoy things. Because if someone is really that stupid to let something fictitious affect them to the point of committing crimes, Darwinism is a thing. Let them weed themselves out. So, Sutomo Miyazaki, also known as the Ratman, the Little Girl Killer, Dracula, and most popular Otaku Killer, was born on August 21st, 1962 in Itsukaichi, Tokyo, Japan. He was born into a wealthy family who ran a prestigious newspaper. His father did a bad and raped one of Sutomo's older sisters, who in turn ended up being his mother. Yay incest! Sutomu was born premature and weighed only 2.2 kilograms. He was also born with a defect called congenital radio ulnar fusion disease, which is a rare condition in which there is an abnormal connection of the radius and ulna at birth. There's an infamous photo of his hands that people have been sharing on the internet that look all gangly and long. Pretty much picture Nosferatu, how his hands looked. This, I found out, however, is a fake photo that only is present in the U.S. searches. Over in Japan, the image doesn't even come up in any of the image searches related to Satomu because it's actually from an online medical journal in 2006 showing a picture of someone suffering from Marfan syndrome, which is a genetic disorder that affects connectivity tissue in the body. Not even the same thing. His wrist bones were basically fused to the radius and ulna, and he's missing his rotator joint in his wrist, making it impossible for him to rotate his hand. Yeah, his fingers are slightly longer, and it does look like he has just, like, this really long arm. I've seen his photos, 
but nothing to the extent of the one floating around the internet. Because of this condition, he was shunned by his family, not because he's a product of incest. No, 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 because he has fucked up hands. Everyone knew about his birth, but kept it on the hush-hush because can't ruin the family name. So, like, everyone in the family knew, but they were like, no, it never happened. Shh. <laughs> so, his father, fake mother, and sisters pretty much hated him, especially his two younger ones. They would make fun of him along with the kids at school. They called him Dracula Hands, and he never made any really, like, real friends because he had difficulties picking shit up and couldn't play with any toys so no one wanted to play with him the only one in his family that had any emotion besides hate towards him was his grandfather his grandpa loved him like genuine no judgment real love you know the kind that parents are supposed to have for their children he would support satomu try to teach him how to be more dexterous with his hands and help him grow as a person in general but Satomo didn't see his grandpa all that often, so he spent the majority of his time being isolated and bullied everywhere he went. So one day, he just got fed up with all of it and was like, well, fine, if everyone's going to be an asshole to me, then I'll just ignore them back. And he ended up going full tilt into his studies, becoming basically a genius in school, surpassing all his classmates. By the time he passed middle school, he had excelled academically enough to get accepted into one of the most prestigious hard to get into high schools in Japan. Um, it's called the Midai Nakano high school, which is a high school that is associated with Meiji university and even harder school to get into for college. His parents never cared that he did so well or that he got into one of the hardest schools in the country. So again, he was on his own every day. He would take a two hour trip to and from school um, and still managed to rank 40 out of the 56 students in his class. The bullying, however, got worse. Along with the students being relentless about the appearance of his hands, one of his classmates told him one day that he wanted to see if Satomu had any other deformities. So one day in the locker room for Jim, he told Satomu that he wanted to see what he looked like naked. Satomo didn't think it was that big of a deal. He was just getting chained like all the other boys, but this was his other big mistake he made. The classmate saw his penis and used to use that to add to the bullying for the whole school to know about. According to the skid, Satomo's little buddy was thinner than a pencil and shorter than a toothpick. I, of course, can neither confirm nor deny this, but I ain't exactly jumping down that rabbit hole to look for nudie pictures of a serial killer. Needless to say, this took an even bigger toll on him. He never made any friends, still, and he never even talked to girls because they were disgusted by his hands and now had no interest due to his baby dick syndrome. So he just lost it. His emotions were pretty much shot to shit and his grades just dive bombed. So he didn't get into the customary acceptance to Meiji University that apparently all the students in that high school got. He ended up going to a local community college closer to home and started studying photography. This, however, was the start of some hobbies that were a bit less than kosher. 
He started collecting manga, adult magazines, and anime videos, which isn't abnormal, but when you buy hundreds of them, locking yourself in your room and spend every second home reading or watching, accompanied with taking trips to the school's tennis courts to take upskirt shots of all the female players, it seems kind of creepy. Again, I love anime, manga, all that stuff, but I don't spend every waking second obsessing over them. My obsession with serial killers, ghost videos, and making playlists on Spotify wouldn't allow me the time. Priorities. Yeah, let's go with that. (laughs) So, yeah, he was taking the pics of the girls and taking them home to whack off while he watched the videos. Like I said, bit creepy. He soon found out, however, that the anime and nudie mags weren't enough, so he started buying hentai. Which, if you don't know what that is, it's anime porn. After college, he went to work at the family newspaper as a photo technician. He hated this, one, because he hated his father, and also because he would rather be taking photos of naughty bits instead of politicians and local celebrities. He ended up quitting the newspaper and continued to live at home for a while. At the age of 25, in 1987, his grandfather died, and he snapped. Like... He had now lost the only person in his life that ever loved or cared about him, so any shred of humanity left in him was just ripped out. He made one last desperate attempt to get have his grandpa be close to him. Unfortunately, the only way he felt this would be possible was to eat his ashes, so he would always be connected to him. Okay! <laughs> For some reason, all I can picture is Gollum crouching in the corner of a room with a death grip on this urn as he's hoovering the shits and hissing at people like, like, my grandpa. Like, what the fuck? After that, he would delve into the really messed up shit. He decided one day that he needed to spy on his sister while she was showering, and he wasn't, like, trying to be all sneaky, like, ninja his way into the bathroom or peek through the window. No. He literally just stood in the open doorway watching her. Like, so, of course, she flipped out and started yelling at him to get out, calling him a pervert, threatening to tell her mother. So, he got pissed and bashed her head into the side of the tub. She ran off after and went to tell on him. His mother then confronted him about it, screaming at him. So he proceeded to beat the shit out of her. The family just stopped talking to him altogether after this. Don't blame them for that, at least. (laughs) Like, the neglect and everything else, that was kind of ishy. Like, ugh, don't treat your kids like that. But I I don't blame them for ceasing communication after that bullshit. His activity escalated when he moved on to hurting animals. This is one of the parts of my episodes that I hate to talk about. I've become desensitized to a lot of disturbing shit. However, animals and kids still strike a chord with me. Anyway, he found a random puppy when he was out and about one day and wondered what it would feel like to strangle it, so he did. It, of course, died, and this only sparked his interest more. He found a cat and wanted to see how long it would take to drown, so he threw it in the river. But that still wasn't enough for him. So the second cat he found, he took it home and boiled it alive in a pot on the stove at home. 
Not surprisingly, he moved out after this to a two-bedroom apartment in Tokyo. Now he had no one to stop him or bother him anymore. So there's a law for porn in Japan that says that if you make a film, you have to blur out the pubic hair. Not any other body part, including the genitalia, just the pubes. So it makes viewing kind of weird. But pubic hair is also seen as sexy, I guess, in Japan. So a lot of the porn stars just let the forest reclaim the land. I don't know about you, but Afro Bush isn't that appealing. Anyway, <laughs> Satomu wasn't a fan of this either. So instead of getting his hands on American porn or from porn from other countries, so he didn't have to deal with the censorship, he decided to find porn that had girls that hadn't grown anything. <sighs> yeah, he started watching child porn, whether it was hentai or live action. He was buying it by the armfuls, and the more fucked up, the better. He got into a lot of bondage and torture porn involving underage girls. His favorite hentai was called Guinea Pig Number 2, just the second installment of the series called Flowers of Flesh. It's about a man who kidnaps a little girl, rapes and kills her, and dismembers her by cutting off her head and hands. And fun fact, someone decided to get a hold of this and make it a live-action movie. Charlie Sheen ended up getting a copy of it at one point from one of his film fanatic friends and thought it was a snuff film, so he reported it to the FBI. I mean, good on him. It wasn't a snuff film, obviously, but still, something really needs to be done about that shit. Unfortunately, at that time in the 80s and 90s, child porn wasn't illegal to own or watch. This law didn't change until 1999. So, yeah. Up until 1999, all the pedophiles could just watch kitty porn to their heart's content. Trust me, when I first read this, my eyeballs threw up. to keep the podcast focused on content that entertains, informs, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. Your support would help the show grow so much. So I've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. The whole thing will take 30 seconds. It's glow.fm forward slash something wicked. That's glow.fm forward slash S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G W-I-C-K-E-D. We're asking for $3 a month, but you can contribute as much or as little as you'd like. If something wicked is part of your day or week and you love what we're doing please visit glow.fm forward slash something wicked and support us any way you can today it's dead simple and again will take no more than 30 seconds click the link in the show notes pay with apple or google pay and click the link of the podcast player that you want to use you can listen anywhere at any time happy listening Satomu now had a new focus. He became obsessed with little girls and would go out to the playgrounds and parks to watch them and take pictures of them. He had later said at one point, quote, I felt all alone. Whenever I saw a little girl playing on her own, it was almost like seeing myself, end quote. So this creeper was comparing his own childhood trauma to justify spying and getting off on watching little girls. And I mean little, little, like single digits. 
He figured that if he tried anything with them, they were too young to know any better because what toddler, basically, knows anything about anatomy or sex at all? Like, what the fuck? Oh, God, he's such a disgusting pig. So he would continue doing this, taking pictures, spying, and collecting more and more movies to watch when he had his alone time with his camera shots. The day after his 26th birthday on August 22nd, 1988, he decided to give himself what he considered a birthday present to him. He saw four-year-old Marty Kono, who was playing out front at a friend's house, and just rolled up and was like, hey little girl, do you want some candy? And she was like, sure, and got all excited because what kid doesn't like free candy? This is why it is so important to teach your kids about strangers. Like, I know it's possible for them to still get taken, but from a front yard in broad daylight, come on people, at least keep an eye on them. I don't care how safe you think the area is, shit like this can happen. I feel for the family, I do, but teach your kids. So she got into the car and he drove off with her to a wooded area. He took her into the woods and started taking pictures of her. She, of course, was like, why are we in the woods? You said you were going to give me candy. I don't like this. I'm going home. This pissed Satomo off, and he came up behind her and strangled her to death. Then he stripped her, continued to take pictures of her before he raped her. So he's a necrophile as well. He took more pictures again, took her clothes, and left her in the woods. One of the theories for his M.O. was presented later on that he chose to strangle little kids because he wasn't strong enough to be able to strangle an adult. But that doesn't make any sense to me. If he was a pedophile, why would he go after adult women? I think that he did it because strangulation is considered one of the worst ways to kill someone because it's intimate and it takes a long time. In his case... He noted later that it would take anywhere from 5 to 10 minutes for his victim to die. So this little baby had to go through that terror for 5 to 10 minutes, and that was the last thing she experienced. Mari's family put up over 50,000 missing posters all over Tokyo in hopes that someone would know where their daughter was. They would get a lot of prank calls with people saying that they saw Mari, who gave the family false hope. Satomu actually would call the family and harass them by breathing heavy into the receiver without saying a word, like one of those creepers, like, (sighs) and when they would hang up on him or refuse the call, he would continuously call them for 20 minutes straight until they picked up and he would do the same thing again. They never reported the calls to the police because they would get a lot of prank calls and think that the police would tell them just that and to not worry. Six weeks later, he committed his second murder on October 3rd of 1988. He saw a seven-year-old Misami Yoshizawa walking alone along the side of the road and offered for her to get a ride home. So she got into the car and he drove to the same spot with her that he murdered Marian and he took her in the woods and wanted to take pictures of her. Misami saw the decomposing body of Mari and didn't understand what was going on and got scared. Satomu walked up behind her as well and strangled her to death. He stripped her, took pictures, and raped her body. He ended up having a panic attack because when he was assaulting her, her body twitched. This is a thing that can happen after death because it can take up to 12 hours after the brain shuts down for the nervous system to catch up, so you'll get things like twitches and muscle movements. Satomu saw this and flipped the fuck out, grabbed a shit, and just drove back home. 
after a little while, he would also call Masami's family to harass them and breathe heavy into the phone. So both families are now having this experience of not only their little girls missing and wondering if they're okay, but also having this psycho call them constantly, scaring them even more. The police did connect the two murders because the girls lived within 12 miles of each other, so they tried to investigate, but unfortunately there was no evidence of any murders. They were just missing at this point. I mean, at least they're trying. I know that almost every single episode I've done so far, the cops were just very dismissive and didn't seem to give a shit. I know that the police tend to get more involved when there's a crime involving children, but even the teenage boys that the Candyman killed... They were just like, meh. Is it just the areas that differ that make it depend on how much care goes into a case? Or is it certain people? I don't know. Going back to Satomu, the third murder occurred on December 12th of 1988. Four-year-old Erica Namba was walking home alone from a friend's house. He offered her some candy, so she got into his car. Again, what the hell? First off... Why are you letting a four-year-old walk anywhere alone? It's not like she was right next door. This was like a few blocks that she was walking. She's not some teenager that's hanging out and, you know, with friends, like riding on bikes and shit and knows better. She's four. (sighs) It's aggravating. When he took her, he drove her an hour and a half away from her home to some parking lot that belonged to the youth nature house with a bunch of woods behind it. He forced her to undress and she was crying as he started taking pictures of her with flash because it was around sunset. So it was getting dark in the car because you know, he just had to have the perfect shots. Another car drove by and its headlights flashed across Satoma's face for a moment. So he panicked and put a pair of gloves on. Then he reached into the back seat and strangled Erica to death. Then he wrapped her body in a bed sheet and put her body into the trunk. He took her clothes and tossed them into the woods behind the parking lot. Then he drove away. But when he was turning around a corner in the road, his his front tire got stuck in a pothole. He immediately threw on his hazard lights, got out, grabbed Erica's body and tossed her into the woods alongside of the road. He grabbed the sheet because he didn't want any evidence linking it back to him, but when he got back to his car, there were two men standing near it, checking it out. He walked up to the car, casually put the sheet back in the trunk, and asked what they wanted. They offered to help him out, so he agreed. When they did and got him unstuck, he just sped off without saying a word. No thank you, nothing, just gone. Satomu started getting even more skeevy at this point. Besides also calling Erica's family with the heavy breathing, he sent them postcards that read, Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. The next day, the worker of the youth nature house found Erica's clothes. The police started this massive search because they figured all the missing girls were connected. The day after that, they found Erica's body. Her hands and feet had been bound. She was naked, but they didn't find any other evidence. No forensics of any kind, no DNA, nothing. When the news broke out about the discovery, the two men that helped Satomu with his car came forward. They talked about how Satomu had come out of the woods Erica was found in, acting all weird and carrying a bedsheet. The police had them do an identification on the vehicle, and they said that it was a Toyota Corolla, but weren't 100% sure because it was dark out. 
the police proceeded to search over 6,000 locals that owned Toyota Corollas. Satomu drove a Nissan, so unfortunately they misidentified the car. The police, however, did acknowledge that they had a serial killer on their hands because the three girls lived a maximum of 30 miles apart, and all three families had received the creepy phone calls from the unknown number. Yeah, Erica was the only one that was found so far. The other two were technically considered missing, but they were just like, no, this is way too coincidental. It has to be a serial killer. This was when Satoma went back to the scene of Maria's death because she had been decomposed pretty much down to bone at this point, so it was easier for him to cut off her hands and feet. He then took her body home and tried to cremate her in a furnace in his kitchen. It didn't work as well as he'd hoped for, so he put the ashes and the remaining bones and teeth into a box. He then took her hands and cooked them to eat and stored the rest of her hands and her feet in his bedroom closet. He dropped the box off to the front doorstep of Mari's home with a postcard attached that read, Mari cremated bones proof investigate. He also included a photo of Mari's clothes because, you know, he just couldn't let go of his trophies. When the family received the box, Mari's mother called the police and told them, quote, I don't know exactly who sent this, but I do know for a fact that it's the person who took my daughter, end quote. Mari's family then turned the box over to their legal team, who sent it to the Tokyo Dental University. They told the family that the teeth weren't human, so the contents of the box couldn't possibly be Mari. A massive media and press conference was held, and Mari's mother was crying with joy over the news from the university and told everyone that it gave her hope and pleaded with people to help her look for her daughter. A little while later, the university realized that they don't fucked up. They called Mari's parents to tell them the news that those were her remains, so naturally the family was devastated. The people at the medical office tried to put Mari back together as best as they could, but realized that her hands and feet were missing. At her funeral, the father made a tearful statement saying to the killer to please return his daughter's hands and feet, otherwise she wouldn't be able to walk or eat in heaven. Oh my god, that... God, that that reminds me of that scene in My Girl when Veda is freaking out about how Thomas can't see because he doesn't have his glasses as he's lying in the casket. God, that's terrible. It like really breaks my heart. When the family got home from the funeral, they found postcards of poems and descriptions of how he killed Mari, what he did with her body, and the stages of decomposition, how they affected her. He would do this also with the other families of his victims as well, and he always signed them Yuko Imada. The conference pissed Satomu off, and when he saw it on the news, and wrote a three-page letter to a local journalist. He was just like, what the fuck is this? I sent these people Mari, and now they're saying it isn't. Like, this isn't gonna fly. I'm gonna have a bitch fit. I'm gonna write a letter. In this letter, he confessed everything, in fact, he named the letter My Confession, and it said, quote, The person who sent that box to Mari Kono's house was indeed me. Everything about this Mari Chan case was orchestrated by me. There's a reason I am writing this letter exposing the truth to you right now. Firstly, the bones inside the box are indeed, without a doubt, Mari's bones, and here's the proof. I drowned her in a nearby river. 
The other day I saw on TV that based on false information given by the police, Mari Chan's mother still has hope. And when I saw that, I felt a sense of urgency to clean this matter up myself. At this rate, they will truly for all eternity never know Mari's whereabouts. And thus I am writing this confession letter today. Those bones are truly Mari Chan's. Thank you so much for having a funeral. Thanks to you, my kin, all of them, finally able to go to the grave. I will ask God for a battle. I will have to hit God with the hard task to not get me captured for 15 years and grant my wish to meet children who want to meet me. That is the only way for humans to fight God. End quote. He signed it, Yuko Himata. Yuko Amato was supposedly an alter ego of Satomo's, but if you roughly translate it, the name sounds like Now I Tell, so no one thought it was a real person to look for. Besides the fact that we know that Mari wasn't drowned, I mean, they can't tell if all that's left of her was ash and bone, but that's besides the point. There was an uproar about the letter because first, the university messed up, then the handwriting analysts that were hired to read the letter couldn't tell anything from it like what gender the person was what age just nothing the police sent 5,000 pamphlets to local homes with copies of the letter to ask them if they knew anyone that had that handwriting but nothing came of that either they were however able to pinpoint the make and model of the camera that took the pictures of Mari's clothes and the box that was sent to the house had a double wall which is commonly used to ship camera lenses after the funeral and news stories and the police digging deeper into the investigation, Sotomo decided to lay low for a bit for fear of getting caught. So he went on hiatus for a few months. Then he decided to go to an elementary school one day and watch the girls on the playground. He found one little girl about five or six years old, approached her and forced her to take off her underwear and started taking pictures of her vagina. A neighbor to the school that was outside saw this happening so he went after Satomu and chased him off this was never for uh investigated further which i don't know why especially if the neighbor saw Satomu's face he could have described him to the police but like nothing was reported nothing was done on june 6 1989 Satomu decided to head back to the tennis court to take some more upskirt shots of the girls there but the courts were closed so he got upset he went to a nearby park and saw five-year-old Ayako Nomoto playing alone on the playground. He walked up to her and asked if she wanted him to take pictures of her playing, so she said sure because she thought it would be fun. After a few pictures were taken, he asked if she wanted to continue taking pictures in his car and that if she said yes, he would give her some candy and gum. She was so excited to get candy that she literally skipped to the car. I don't like this. I don't like the visual in my mind of her skipping and being happy because I know I just do not like. So Ayako got into his back seat and he took some pictures. Then he went to hand her a piece of gum and she noticed his hands. She thought they looked funny and asked what was wrong with them. Satoma smiled at her, slowly put on a pair of gloves, then screamed at her, quote, here's what happens to kid who say stuff like that. End quote. He then strangled her to death. God, that poor baby. Not just dying, but the fact that she probably thought that she was being hurt because she did something wrong. Oh, just, oh my God, this guy. After she died, he tied her hands and feet up, 
wrapped her in the same bedsheet that he put Erica in and threw her in the trunk. Instead of dumping her in the woods like the other girls, he took Ayako home with him, where for the next two days, he took videos and pictures of himself sexually assaulting her body. He drank her blood, hence the nickname Dracula, even though it was just the one time. Then he dismembered her whole body, barbecued her hands, and ate them. Like, he literally cooked them on a grill. The rest of her body parts were kept in his bedroom closet, but after a few days, they started to smell from the decomp, so he took her torso to a local bathhouse and left it in the middle of that. He took her legs and put them in a cemetery, and the rest of her he threw about 200 meters into the woods behind his home. He, of course, realized that this was a bad idea, so he took the parts and he th- uh, that he threw in the woods and took them back home to store in a storage room that was behind his closet in the bedroom. A few days later, he wrapped the parts into a plastic bag, and he took that and the sheet to a spot that was underneath an overpass to the main road and tried to burn her hair, her clothes, the bag, sheets, and the rest of her. On July 23rd of 1989, he went to a playground and saw two sisters playing. He told the older nine-year-old one that she should stay there so that he could take her four-year-old sister into the woods to give her some candy. He persuaded the four-year-old to follow him despite her older sister's protests. The older girl ran to get her dad to tell him what happened. The dad called the police and then went back to the area he was told his younger daughter went. There, he found her naked with Satomu trying to put the camera lens inside her vagina to take pictures. So, naturally... The dad went ape shit and tried to attack Satomu. Like, he was wanting to kill him. I would too, honestly. My ass would be in jail. The dad chased him back to his car where the older girl and the police were waiting for him. He was immediately arrested and knew that this had the same MO as the serial killings. Satomu was interrogated for 17 days in prison until he confessed to the murders. The police started to slowly find the remains little by little. Ayako's torso was the first part that was found. Obviously, if it's sitting in the middle of a friggin' bathhouse, how could it not be? Thankfully, because Ayako was reported missing, they were able to test to see if it was her. The torso matched her age, her blood type, and they were able to get the stomach contents, which matched with the parents' description of the last thing she ate. Not so good news from this is that the police had no other ties to lead the evidence to Satomu. But the good news being that he was still charged for the martyr regardless. I do love that the justice system there just knows that he did, in fact, commit the murder. So they were just like, yeah, fuck you, you're going down. When the police searched his house, they were shocked. In his bedroom was just a mattress on the floor in front of a small TV, a shit ton of manga and adult magazines, and wall-to-wall with 5,763 videos of hentai, anime, child porn, slasher, and snuff films. I've seen the photos of this dude's room, and it looks like a built-in ceiling, like ceiling-to-floor movie cubby with a mattress. I'd be terrified to sleep in there, let alone spend my whole day in there. I'm too claustrophobic for that shit. The police also found photos and videos of the girls and what he did to them and the remaining hands and feet of both Ayako and Mari, so those were able to be returned to the families. 
Satomo was taken to trial, and his father, even though they were rich, refused to hire an attorney for him because he said it wouldn't be fair to the victim's families. So the court appointed him two public defense lawyers. Funny thing, again, <laughs> the court had to hunt these guys down. No one wanted to work with him. They were just like, hell no. The two lawyers that he had only agreed to work with him because they were opposed to the death penalty and wanted to try to get him life in prison. Everyone hated him, especially after they put his picture out in the news. Like, he had to be hidden on the way into trials because the crowds outside would just try to rush him while screaming, like, kill him, kill him. Like, they they wanted him dead. And I don't, I don't blame them one bit. His lawyers went through the whole rigmarole of getting six different psychologists to evaluate him to try and declare him insane so he wouldn't get the death penalty. The psychologists, however, found him sane and perfectly able to understand what he did. Now, there were two separate teams with the psychologists. The first one thought that he had DID, which is disassociative... God, again, words, sorry. Disassociative Identity Disorder. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Split, but it's kind of like that, where the person can have multiple personalities that kind of take over at any given time. This group thought that he had four identities, including himself. The other group thought he was schizophrenic, and a couple of them actually broke off from the teams altogether and said that he didn't have any mental disorders at all and that he was just a sociopath and a psychopath. Yes, there's a difference. Sociopaths have extreme emotions and are usually erratic and rage-driven in their crimes, whereas psychopaths have little to no emotion at all, but are usually extremely manipulative, calculated, and more likely to lead a normal life. Satoma's lawyers begged the psychologist to keep reviewing their findings so that he could use the insanity plea because if he got that granted, he would get thrown into a mental health facility for about 13 to 14 years before he was released. There was a book that was out for a time that actually revealed the entire transcript of the interrogation and interviews by the psychologists. I don't even know if it's still out now, but regardless of that, it's it's just strictly in Japanese. It was never translated to any other language. So myself, along with anyone else that can't read Japanese, will probably never actually get to read the book. I only have a little bit of it here that was translated um, by someone that did an article on it, but it is pretty weird. Like, when he was having this these sessions with psychologists, he would talk about one of his supposed alters he called the Rat Man. He said that the Rat Man was slightly smaller than him, about 90% of him. Uh, he said that during the sessions, he would stand about a meter away from Sotomu and that he didn't seem nervous, and Sotomu found that strange. He said that during the murders, it was the Rat Man that did it, and that Sotomu would just be sitting on the sidelines, nervously watching him kill the girls. Like, he pretty much had this out-of-body experience where he would physically see the rat man leave him and then just go commit these crimes. That he was the one steadily kidnapping and killing the girls. Um, he said he saw him about three to four times, and when that happened, ten of these rat men would come out and surround him. But those times, their faces were larger than a regular human, and their body was just big in general. Once the rat man came out, the girls would fall over and lose consciousness. 
He told the psychologist, quote, I've only killed three people. Please listen. You may have all the proof, but I didn't do it. I'm not lying. I said the truth. There's a reason I was silent, end quote. So he says he killed three people, but that he didn't do it. Totally besides the fact that being able to physically see another version of himself completely goes against the DID diagnosis because people with that condition may have alters, but they usually have no knowledge of what happens when they take over, let alone see them. So more than likely, he was just playing the Sybil card, trying to bullshit his way through the trial. Satomo spent the trial acting crazy and claiming to not know who he was. He would also spend time drawing pictures of the rat man, which, mind you, were pretty much just stick figure drawings of a rat, and would hold it up for the jury and families to see. He also said to the court, quote, I refuse to apologize because what I did was an act of benevolence, an act of gracious favor to you, end quote. Masami's father made a statement to the press after Satoma's refusal to apologize, saying, quote, yes, I am very vengeful, and if the law would let me, I wish I could hurt him so that at least he could feel a little bit of what Masami felt, end quote. Personally, I'd have a lot more to say than that, but I understand that televised threats of torture and death are not exactly kosher for you. There were a couple of theories as to why he committed these crimes, one of which was the one I mentioned earlier about him not being strong enough to strangle adults. The other two were, one, that because he consumed his grandpa's ashes, his head got all fucked up and made him crazy. The other being that he killed the girls because he wanted to make his own home movie to add to his collection. Which I really hope that's not the case. I'd rather that the ashes made him insane. Honestly. The jury ruled in favor of the prosecutor and granted the death penalty. And they weren't playing. The police chief made a statement to the press saying that they were charging all three of the motherfucker's personalities. Yoshio, Yamazaki, Shinji, Mutsuda, and Satomu, not including the rat man, to death. Satomu claimed that he never made up the alias Yuko Amada and that he never wrote any of the postcards or letters. During the sentencing, his, um, his father also sold his home and his land to help compensate the families of the victims, but it was also revealed during the trial about his past and how he raped his daughter, who gave birth to Satomu. So out of shame and blame of the parents from the public, he committed suicide by jumping off of Jingai Bridge. The newspaper and the fam- that the family owned was shut down, and the mother moved away to a different part of Japan out of shame. One of the older sisters was forced to quit her job, one of his uncles was forced to retire from his, and two of his other uncles divorced their wives to save them from being tainted by the family name. So, dude didn't just fuck himself over, he fucked, like, whole ass generations of his family over. Every spot in Japan that is even remotely associated with Satomu or his murders are now either torn down or cut off from access. The roads he drove on with the victims are blocked off. The apartment complex that he lived in is now just an empty lot that's surrounded by security cameras so no one can actually go there. And his old family home had been torn down. No one wants to remember what happened. There's no news on how the victims' families handled themselves in the aftermath. I'm hoping they were able to move on and live their lives like as normally as possible. On June 17th, 2008, Satomo's sentence was carried out, which I don't know how he managed to stay alive in jail for that long. I know for a fact that if prisoners find out you did stuff with kids, you're 
the bottom of the food chain and you're going to get taken out. So he must have had protection or something. I don't really know how prisons in Japan operate. Now, the death sentences in Japan, I do know about. They are done by hanging. The prisoner isn't told about the date of his execution until the day of. They're brought into this death chamber with a priest and told that they're allowed to write a will if they want. Then a bag is placed over their heads. Then the three policemen that were in the chamber with them exit and stand in front of a wall with a button in front of each of them. The trap door underneath the prisoner um, is randomly wired to one of the buttons. Then the officers are given a signal to press the buttons at the same time so they don't know who carried out the sentence. This is done in hopes to ease the officers' minds, and they are immediately given a week's mandatory vacation to clear their heads. In Satomo's case, no one felt any remorse. There's no record of if he said any final words in the chamber. It's only known that the last thing he said to one of his psychologists before his execution was, quote, please tell the world I was a good person, end quote. He's rumored to be buried in the Zoshigaya Cemetery, where all the inmates of Death Row are supposedly buried, but the building has no name and you can't access it, so it's probably not true. After his hanging, he was cremated. When the police phoned his family to let them know he was gone and to ask if anyone wanted to collect his ashes, his mother answered the phone and said, I'll leave the cleaning up to you. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Remember to follow me on Anchor and tune in next week when we talk about David Parker Ray, the Toy Box Killer. Laters!